hey, thanks for tuning in to First Look. I've had a blast creating this podcast for you, and I really appreciate all the kind words that I've received. If this is the first episode that you're listening to in the feed, uh, I would actually uh, encourage you to jump out of this one and start at part one, listen all the way through. Today, I'm actually bringing just a bonus episode, which is simply a full, unedited interview that I did with Jove Meyer. We hear a little bit more about his upbringing, and uh, one of the biggest things that I really wanted to talk to him about when we got on uh, the microphone was this, uh, this concept of an ally pledge, something that he developed in his business. I tried so hard to fit this into the main podcast, but... Unfortunately, every time I tried to bring it in or tie it in with another idea, it just didn't sit right. So instead, I've decided to just bring you the full interview here today, unedited. I know you're going to get so much value out of hearing from Jove. He's a really clever guy. Um, So listen uh, as he talks about the Ally Pledge in particular and, and how he views his role as an ally to other marginalized people. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoy it. Great. Okay. Well, why don't we start? Maybe, Jove, can you just start by introducing yourself, uh, your pronouns, and a little bit about what you what you are and who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Jove Meyer. I'm originally from California, but I currently live in New York City, and I'm an event planner and designer for those who dare to be different. I love that. What a great way to summarize what you do. Thank you. Those that dare to be different. Yeah, 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 it's beautiful. I'm sure you've had to say that (laughs) several times. (laughs) Just a few. Uh, Okay, well, Jove Meyer, what is the Jove Meyer story? Oh, how much time do you have? And where do you want to start? Uh, Wherever you feel compelled to start. I was born in a small beach town, and I was raised in a very religious family. I have five brothers, one older, four younger, and I always knew from a very young age that it didn't really it didn't really fit in that world or in that religion or necessarily in my family for that matter. Um, I spent much of my younger years trying to make everyone else happy while suppressing my own happiness and self-discovery, and it wasn't until... Many years later, when I finished being a good church boy, did the missionary work, did everything everyone asked of me, that I realized I wasn't doing anything for myself, and I was just putting myself last, um, which is classic religious training for anyone indoctrinated in religion. And ultimately, you know, through luck and the universe and timing, I ended up um, being an extra on a movie set and it was the movie Milk. And I spent a lot of time with the writer of that movie, who is Dustin Lance Black, and he was raised Mormon, and he came out, and he shared his story with me, and it was really empowering. And I realized that there was a world beyond what I thought was possible if I turned my back, so to speak, on the religion and culture that I was raised in. And it was also the first time in my life I had met other queer people. I had only heard growing up that, you know, queer people died of AIDS and they molested children. Those were the two things, the only narratives possible for gay people when I was growing up. So to be part of this movie as an extra, a very small part, uh, really was life-changing because I met hundreds of queer people 
who mm. shared their love stories, their life stories, their journeys, their highs, their lows, their happiness. And I realized they're just like everyone else. It's like all these negative things I heard in my brain were lies and were not true. And it really empowered me to step away from the faith and to really find myself. And so mm. I sold my car, I quit my job, I packed my bags and I moved to New York City and I started sort of a brand new life here. Wow. Wow. Okay. I want to just go back uh, for those listening who maybe don't know the movie Milk. Can you just give like a really brief summary of what that movie's about? Sure. I also had no idea who Harvey Milk was when I accepted the movie, which is part of the irony of it all. But he um, was one of the first queer politicians in San Francisco um, who really led a movement to give voice to the voiceless, which were gay people predominantly in the 80s and 90s. Early in American history, it was illegal to be gay in the United States. Um, and it, it wasn't just taboo, it was criminal, punishable by imprisonment. So um, he was one of the first out gay politicians in San Francisco, and he was murdered. And so it's sort of the story of his rise to power, along with the queer movement's rise to, you know, defending and fighting for our rights. Mm, mm, yeah, such a powerful movie and, um, like, just such an icon, Harvey Milk. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I remember, so I do have, I mean, this is really off topic, but I have a really, like, similar upbringing in... Um, you know, coming from the church and, and a really mm-hmm. um, religious community and, and it found it really hard to come out. But one of the first times in my life that I ever dared to travel to the city, so travel to Sydney to try and find a church that was queer affirming and I mm-hmm. couldn't find the church. Like I parked where they told me to park and I could not, I was walking around this like block of buildings, could not find the church. And there was a man that I saw walking around wearing a Harvey Milk t-shirt. Oh, wow. And I was like, okay. well, I know I'm that the church him. that I'm going to is is queer inclusive. So I, I said, yeah. hey, are you going to church? And he said, yeah, I am. I said, can I follow you? I don't know where to go. So that's the first thing that I think of when I think of Amazing. Harvey Milk now is, is my, my first time is going to a queer inclusive church. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um... So, Jove, uh, just so I've got a sense of the timeline, when did you move to New York? Yeah, 2008 is when I moved to New York City. Okay, so well before we had the Supreme Court decision around marriage equality. Yes, well before. It's odd because I was working, when I graduated, I began really working full-time in weddings. And when I first started working in weddings, it wasn't legal for me to get married. So it was a weird space to be in because here I am providing services for some people, but these services weren't possible for myself or other queer people. So it was a very strange conundrum to kind of be in. And um, when same-sex marriage passed in New York State, it was a huge celebration. But obviously when it went federal, that was an even bigger moment for our country And now uh, we're all a little scared, to be perfectly honest, based on the leaked (laughs) ruling from the Supreme Court around Roe v. Wade. We're all pretty nervous that we're next on the chopping block um, of Supreme Court decisions that 
once carried weight and importance now seem to potentially be, um, you know, to be changed, not in our favor or not in the favor of equal rights for all people. Yeah, this is like, I guess I've been keeping an eye on what's happening, obviously, in the last 24 hours or so, but totally um, tangential, not tangential, but really just not at all something that I was anticipating. I'm, I'm based in Australia, so I don't mm-hmm. pay a lot of attention to what's happening, um, you know, with the Supreme Court in the States. Sure. Like, we've got our Makes own sense. our own <laughs> things that we're doing here. Um, but, yeah, really, you, as you say, like, that's a really scary prospect, and it really does put a big question mark over some of these other decisions that have been made by the Supreme Court um, yeah. in a more, like, liberal-leaning Supreme Court and now kind of yeah. moving back to those conservatives. So... Maybe just because this is like totally not something that I have anticipated as part of like content for the podcast, but can you talk a little bit more about like um, wh- why why are you why is there a fear or why are we a little bit nervous about this? Sure, I mean contextually, Roe v. Wade is fifty years old. Same sex, you know, marriage equality in the states that was passed in two thousand fifteen is seven years old. You know, and then between the two of those, interracial marriage equality was passed. You know, so anything that's moved our country forward towards full equality for all Americans has basically happened through the Supreme Court. States can individually pass their own legislatures, the laws that affect people living in those states. But if it doesn't make it to the top of the land, the Supreme Court, then it's an uphill battle and you're dealing with conservative states and liberal states and opinions vary regionally in this country pretty dramatically. So what's scary is Roe v. Wade was the law of the land and it is the first time in the history of our country where a Supreme Court ruling has been overturned and basically rejected. And so the premise that they are using is that it wasn't part of the original Constitution. So when Ruth Bader Ginsburg fought for abortion, she used language in the original Constitution to define um, a woman's right to choose. And now they're basically alluding to the fact that it wasn't originally in the Constitution, so it cannot really be added uh, or changed. And so... The line of thinking is with that same logic, marriage equality is next in line. I mean, they're Mm. very vocal advocates against women's rights to choose, against trans children, adults, anything trans, and for sure marriage equality. It's, you know, the Mm. three biggest things the conservative movement, the religious movement is against. In their mind, it's anti-family, it's anti-normal, it's anti-society community, and they're still living in the Stone Ages where... You know, it's archaic thinking about us as people and as a society and as a community. And so that's the fear is because it's not in the Constitution that they have now, if they do indeed overrule Roe v. Wade, then they can overrule uh, the case that led us to win our victory for marriage equality. Yeah. Yeah. It's really scary. Um, And yeah, my thoughts are with you and and. I guess like at this point it's it's not that it's happened but it's looking really yeah. likely that um the at train least this, is headed this in abortion that direction. is yeah yes yeah. 
Well, and with the leaning of the court, you know, it's not in favor of equal human rights. And so for me, it's something that's just inexcusable because we're people, we're humans. These aren't opinions. These aren't feelings. These are facts. I was born gay, period. There's no switch. There's no choice. You, you know, you were born straight. I was born gay. In the same country, we deserve the same rights, period. Um, and yeah. same with, you know, women who are wanting to have a baby or are not in a position to have a baby. It's really not up to a bunch of white old men to determine how women um, utilize their bodies or make their choices for them. So, you know, it's it's disheartening. And I, I think it hopefully will build a fire and a fuel in all of us and allies to really come together and stand up and and yeah. and speak our peace and really, out, you know, vote out the people who are harming us and hurting us. Yeah, yeah. This leads really well into a question that I did want to ask you, Jove, which was when I um, first approached you to come on on and, and be interviewed, one of the things that I had to do was I had to sign an ally pledge in order for mm-hmm. you, I guess, to see a values alignment before before coming on. So yeah. I'm really curious to hear more about like where did this ally pledge come from um, and what does it mean to you? Yeah, it's uh, the Ally Pledge is an important part of our company's inclusivity mission. As a gay man who never felt at home in my own body, in my own country, in my own space, I entered an industry where I wasn't able to get married, (laughs) where it wasn't legal for me to fall in love and celebrate that love. And ultimately, over the past couple of years, in the States, everything happening, you know, the the brutal murders of Black people and the Black Lives Matter movement, it really just showed me that there's a lot of hate in the world. And I realized that hate has no place, especially in the business of love. And so if I was going to be a conduit of love and an advocate for inclusivity, I can't work with other people who tolerate, support, or spread hate. It's just not something I will do. And so previously, I lived in the assumption land of, you know, if they're working with me, this openly gay wedding planner, designer, they obviously are an ally or a friend. But, you know, assumptions are often incorrect. And so as I tell all of my clients and all of the industry professionals I work with, we have to stop assuming and start asking. And so I decided to really make a clear step to ask all of the vendors we partner with, whether it's media, vendors we hire, clients who want to work with us, to read, sign, and agree to our ally pledge. Because ultimately, I really believe hate has no place in the world, but particularly not in an industry of love. And so if we're hiring people who are homophobic quietly, money is power, you know, like they're providing the service begrudgingly, but then they're voting people in office who are taking away our rights. And so it just didn't make sense to me. And I couldn't figure out a way to not just shout it from the mountaintop, but to have a concrete way to educate people, but also to align myself with people um, to stop the spread of hate and to really encourage the spread of love. Can you tell me more about the process of actually writing the words of the pledge like that's it's a pretty lengthy document so how did it come about (laughs) that you that you figured out what you wanted to say yeah you know 
For a long time, I think I was set in the mindset of educating about inclusivity in the wedding space around LGBTQ plus people. That's my wheelhouse. That's my personal experience. That's my professional experience. It's my contribution to our our industry to make us a more inclusive industry. And when everything happened with the Black Lives Matter movement and continues to happen, I don't want to make it seem like something of the past, but for me... That's when I really sat, I really read, I really listened, I really took a deeper look at my own self and my own business and my own life. And I thought, what more can I be doing, not just for LGBTQ plus people, but for all marginalized people? Because while our differences may be different, you know, the reality is, is when you're othered in society, you're treated a certain way for being different. And so if my company is about celebrating those who dare to be different, I need to do that fully. And so, yeah, I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of listening. And I also spoke to a lot of friends and professionals and I shared my thoughts and I realized, you know, in our industry, there's a lot of pledges, you know, against Asian American hate, against Jewish hate, against black hate, against gay hate. But there wasn't one inclusive pledge that brought everyone together who was different, who has been marginalized, who has been othered for things we cannot control. And so I decided to create that pledge because I really think there's power in numbers. And if we can all stand up for one another, then we're no longer a small group or a minority. Really, we become the, you know, the majority when you think about women or queer people or people of color or people of different sizes or abilities or disabilities. Like, then we are really the majority at the end of the day, but only when we come together. So I really spent a lot of time making the list of all of the ostracized um, communities that are out there. And my defining line was I did not include anything that is a choice. So religion and politics are not included in my ally pledge because to be religious or political is a choice, but to be of a certain age or born a certain sex or a certain size or with a certain ability or gender are not, there's nothing we can do. There's no control there. And so it's a very clear line that um, if you can't stand up for love, and if you can't stand up for all people, all human beings seeking love, we can't work together. And so it's been a powerful tool, and it's something that reminds me of the work we have to do, and it's something that I hope helps other people realize how they can make improvements in their business, you know, to make an impact in the world. I could just make money, I could just run a really successful business, or I could do my part to make the world a better place. And that's really what I've chosen to do and what I encourage other businesses to do. Mm. I'm, I'm really impressed. And um, yeah, I, I feel like I spend a lot of time thinking about how do I make money and make an impact? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to do both. And yeah, and you can. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's a really profitable business model if you, if you really break it down. Okay. Uh, on the ally pledge, can I then ask, have you, like, what response have you received from other businesses? Is there something that kind of stands out as a, um, a story from, from a business that you've worked with and what they've said about it? Yeah, it's mostly all positive. Um, and I think that's been really wonderful. And I think, having the conversations with other wedding professionals and for them to say, wow, this is so impressive. Like I want to bring something like this to my business or wow, I wasn't aware, 
you know, as a cisgender white person that that racism was so prevalent or homophobia was so prevalent in our industry. And so it's been an educational experience for me, but also for a lot of people that I've talked to. And I also think that I'm a little tired of cancel culture, you know, this culture that just finds something in someone and attacks and destroys them. If we don't give people an opportunity to change, the world will never be a better place. And so if someone says, I can't sign your pledge, my response isn't, fuck you, you're dead to me. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's literally, oh, I'm so curious what part of the pledge you're not in agreement with. I'd love to have a discussion with you. And that to me is sort of how we can move forward is really by having discussions and sharing life and sharing stories and listening, you know, like someone who says, I just can't support trans people. You know, if they have the audacity to say that to me, I want to have the audacity to listen, ask questions, understand where that idea comes from, where that they don't call it hate. They call it a difference of opinion or a difference of viewpoint or against their religion. I want to understand all of that so that I can better know where they're coming from so we can really discuss openly. And I think dialogue creates change. I think just canceling someone, you're just adding fuel to a fire and they just turn their back on you. You know what I mean? It's like, yes, call someone out, but also help them be better. You know, otherwise we're not making progress. And so... Yeah, we've had some uncomfortable conversations, but for the most part, um, if someone is very against it, they just don't sign it, and then we don't work together. But if they're open to a conversation, that's my favorite part, honestly. I'm just taking some notes, but I'm fully with you. Sure. Yeah, you just used a phrase of calling... Yes, call someone out, but also... Um, I forget how you ended it, but I mean, I've got the recording, so, but I, I, um, I really love the phrase of like calling people out and then calling people in. Um, it's, it's like holding you accountable, but then also let's do this work together. Um, Together. There's no, to me, there's no, if everyone who's ever been hated on in this world just says you're wrong for doing that, fuck you, cancel you, you're over, I don't support you then we can't make any change. You know, like we're human. We all make mistakes, you know? And it's funny, when I was growing up, I was raised so religious that I was, like, teaching, like, values that I absolutely don't agree with today, but that's all that I knew then. And yep. if I didn't have the space or people to let me change, I could still be, sell, you know, selling or peddling that kind of culture or lifestyle that's really not healthy or, or genuine. And so it's important, I think. A lot of people say, like, you're wrong, you do the work, you figure it out. But I have an opposite approach, you know? We have a difference of opinion about many things in life. We can have a difference of opinion about how we take our coffee, whether we like cold or hot weather, whether we like a home that's modern or rustic. But there's not really a difference of opinion when it comes to human rights and equal rights. And I think when you have that conversation heart-to-heart in a really sincere way you can change people you know when it's Mm. as simple as why don't you think i deserve the same legal rights you deserve Mm. Mm. the response is is interesting you know i pay taxes like you pay taxes so i shouldn't get the legal benefits you can get why not you know and when you take away religion and when you take away 
what something should be. It really is heart to heart, human to human, you know, and you put them in your shoes. I think it changes people's minds and hearts differently than facts and figures and anger. And so for me, it's that's the approach I think is best. I don't think just calling people out and canceling them helps anybody. Hmm. So good, Joe. So good. I'm just like, I don't know, I'm sitting here in agreement with everything. And it's really lovely to just hear your, um, your conviction and enthusiasm for equality. And yeah. I think that the world is made a better place when we have these conversations. So I'm really appreciative. Um, okay. I want to, I want to take you to a moment. So I had a conversation with Rick Simmons, who Mm -hmm. founded the National Gay Wedding Association. Association, And he just told me about a time where, and I'm not, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was in Las Vegas and you were speaking at a convention. Does this ring Mm -hmm. a bell? Yeah. um, Yeah. Yeah. I forget the name of the conference. It's, it's a wedding MBA in Las Vegas. Wedding MBA. Okay. All right. I I did a quick Google to see, because I was like, I'm not going to listen to the whole conversation with Rick again, but I'm like on your, Uh, on your website, you've got all your speaking engagements. So I looked for which was in Nevada and there was wedding MBA. So, all right. All right. (laughs) Cool. So at wedding MBA, and that must've been in 2019. Um, Rick, yeah, Rick just kind of told me a story of when he walked into the room and uh, was waiting for you to get up and speak. So I just want to take you back like, and see what do you remember about that day? Does anything stand out to you about what you said or who was there or, or, the, or the energy or the vibe of the room? Like, tell me about um, what comes to mind for that day. Yeah, it's very interesting. So there are many wedding conferences in America, but very few of them prioritize inclusivity and diversity as a topic. Um, Often we're relocated to a back room, a tiny corner, somewhere, you know, one time I was literally by the dumpster and I was like, what, why am I here? You know, I've been speaking about this issue for many, many years for little to no pay because I think it's important. And um, when they reached out for me to speak there, I was very excited. And to be honest, they were like, we'll give you the main stage if you want to talk about design trends. And I was like, thank you. I am more than just someone who talks about equality and inclusivity. I do also do design and it is a passion of mine, but no one else at your conference is speaking about inclusivity. So I think I'd love to speak about that. And they were like, okay, we'll give you like a breakout room then. And it's sort of how it goes, really, or how it has gone thus far, is really put you in a small room and see who shows up. And so to be very candid, I was nervous because this was my first time at this conference. It's um, in Las Vegas, and it's a mixed bag of people who are supportive of marriage equality and potentially not supportive. And to be honest, inclusivity is not like a sexy topic people are rushing to hear. But it is, um, it is a talk that I've given over the years and that I've crafted and that um, really comes from my heart. I, I literally pour my heart out on the stage because I learned over the years of giving this talk that nobody cares about facts and history and figures. They want to feel something. And when you connect with someone's heart, you can change their mind. And so here I am in this like dingy room in Las Vegas in a huge conference room. 
And I'm sort of like, oh, this is like a smaller room maybe than I thought or than maybe I was used to. And I just thought like, God, I, I hope people come. Like, I hope they show up. Honestly, like I'll speak to anyone in the room, but it's odd as a speaker if there's three people in a room for a hundred. It's just, it's just an odd experience. And um, the tech didn't go well. There were like a lot of hiccups on the back end from the tech side, but my very good friend Anya was there uh, who helped me create this talk many years ago with The Knot. And she was there to introduce me because they didn't offer anyone to do that. And um, she did all the tech, the lights, and sort of the the play-by-play. And I was shocked how many people actually showed up. There wasn't enough seats in the room. People had to stand. There were people outside. Um, and it really lit up my heart in a way that I didn't expect. And mm-hmm. afterwards, there was a line of people eager to speak with me, which was very exciting. And part of the reason I do that is those conversations and people sharing their own coming out story or the coming out story of their sibling. Or one time I had a wedding photographer who um, is a mother and she literally cried in my arms for a very long time. And she said, I'm, I'm pretty certain my son is gay but I realize I haven't given him the space to be open and honest with me. And I've presumed a lot about what I want for him, but never thought about what he needs for him or who he really is. And so anyways, yeah, it was not what I expected and it ended up being a really good turnout and a really good, a really good talk, I think, but I don't know what Rick said. (laughs) That's where Rick and I kind of connected for the very first time. He came to that talk. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, no, I think his story really aligned with with everything you said. That it was this small room, and it and it, I think he said he sat down and there weren't many people in the room, but yeah. like ten minutes later he was looking around yeah. and it was packed and that it was filled up. You know, people standing along yeah. the walls and and out the door. So. Yeah, just wanted to hear that from your perspective. Um, yeah, it was not comfortable when you're sort of like, great, I flew across the country. I'm not getting paid. I'm here to speak a powerful message. And there's four people in the room and two of them are gay. Like, what's going on? <laughs> you know, like not the audience I'm here for. But um, yeah, it was pretty magical when the room uh, filled up and when we were able to do uh, what we mm. did. Mm. Uh, I want to go back to that story of the woman crying in your arms. How did you meet her? So I was fortunate to speak um, around America with The Knot. They did um, conferences for wedding professionals for two or three years in a row. And ultimately, Anya, who was then part of the education team at The Knot, really brought me on board and helped me craft this particular presentation around inclusivity and diversity in the wedding industry. The Knot at the time was the first major wedding publication to do a survey on the, like including queer people and queer couples. And so it started out with me presenting the results of this survey so wedding vendors could learn the facts and figures so they could help their business, you know, understand sort of how to attract and approach and work with queer couples. And then it really evolved from there Uh, into something a little bit more emotional and personal and intimate. Um, And they literally made it a priority. And I spoke 
I think at like 30 or 40 cities around the country in the course of two years, um, unpaid. I'd like to be very clear about that. Um, and after every presentation, there were a number of people who wanted to speak and who wanted to connect. And for me, that was the best part of it is being fully available to hear and to listen and to have conversations. And there are countless stories and so many hugs um, from people who, you know, their heart was changed or something went off in them and they realized, um, wow, I've been doing this wrong or I've been thinking about this wrong or I've been hurting someone I love unintentionally. Um, and so that's how it happens. Usually I would speak before lunch. So then there's a break and then, um, I would, I would speak to people. I missed a whole lunch one time, this woman and I, she was raised Christian and she just couldn't stop sharing her story with me and her own conflicts because she's like, this is what I'm supposed to believe, but this is what my heart and my life is telling me. And you really gave me such clarity. And, you know, we had a very meaningful conversation for a, a long time. Um, and so that's a big part of it are those one-on-one -on -one moments. Mm -hmm. um, okay. How has the wedding industry changed since marriage equality? That's a loaded question. Um, it's kind of two steps forward, one step back. And I think, you know, um, there are definitely some positive changes. As I said, the knot made a really big effort for those years, putting this topic as a priority at all of their conferences, educating wedding vendors. Um, there are definitely more people who are moving away from bride-focused heteronormative language using genderless, you know, neutral language like couples, lovers, partners, instead of bride, 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 bride. Um, and so I think that there are some things that have been positive. You know, uh, The Knot put the first ever same-sex couple on the cover of their magazine. It was the first in the history. Um, they just put another... Um, gay man on the cover of their magazine and so things are moving for sure it feels much slower than I think it should be but there is movement and there is a change that feels like it's for the better but the reality is is that there's also a lot of progress that needs to happen um, in the states you can still deny services to someone based on your religion and so there was a couple a while ago that I found out about that they were denied a venue because they're gay and the owner's Christian and he refused to have their wedding in his space. There's another couple that went all the way to the Supreme Court um, that they wouldn't make the cake for them. Another couple, they wouldn't make the invitations for them. And so while we now have the right to marry legally, <laughs> it's still not a joyful, love-centered process like it is for everyone else. You know, straight couples get engaged, and it's joy and celebration every step of the way. Of course, there's stress and family drama. That's everyone. But for same-sex couples, we're still living in a society where you have to say, I really love your work. I, I love everything about you. I really hope, you know, you're available on our date, and we really want to work with you. Oh, and by the way, we're gay. And there's still that, you know, six, seven, 10, 20 seconds where someone can bring you back to the most painful part of your life by rejecting you and rejecting your love and rejecting your journey. They're rejecting way more than just 
your desire to work with them. And I don't think they intend that, but that's the, that's the reality, you know? And if that has to happen 10, 15, 20 times per couple, per wedding, the joy of your wedding is diminished before you've even gotten there. And it's, it just shows how much more work we have to do. You know, I wish I didn't have an ally pledge. I wish I knew everyone believed in the good of all people. But the reality is, is racism is real and homophobia is real and transphobia is real and xenophobia is real and sexism is real. Like all of these things are still real and they're still prevalent. And in some ways, given our political situation in the States, it's getting worse. And so... Yeah, it's a mixed bag. I'm grateful for the right. I'm grateful for the progress, but we can't rest on our laurels because it's not it's not going quickly or smoothly or all in the same direction. You know, it's mm. still swimming upstream for a lot of people. So if we look forward and you think about all those all the progress that maybe needs needs to still happen what does the future of the wedding industry look like? I mean, in my mind, I'm hopeful that the future of the wedding industry is filled with young people, you know, a new generation of blood that comes in and doesn't care about your gender, your sexual orientation, your sexual identity. They just care about the kind of wedding you want to have. You know, the future of the wedding industry is love-centered. It's love-focused, period. And it's not generic and it's not heteronormative. Um, it's fresh. It's exciting. It's unique. It's exactly what love is, right? It's not scripted. It's not traditional. It's not by the books because that's not love. That's not a marriage. That's not a relationship, right? It's anything but those things. And so I think that as a newer generation comes in, priorities are shifting, you know, previous generations of people in our industry were full, you know, focused fully on money or fame or both. They didn't necessarily care about moving um, human rights forward or moving equality, the needle on equality in weddings. They just cared about their business and they cared about being famous or being known or being successful. And none of that is wrong, but I think the newer generation cares about those things, but they also equally care about access for everybody and they care about inclusivity and diversity and intentionality and so i think the future of the wedding industry is intentional it's people doing things because it matters to them and it's the right thing to do you know less waste in floral less waste in food less doing because you think you have to and doing because it's meaningful to you and your partner and i i think that really that's the way it's moving in general, and I think it will only continue to grow and gain momentum from, you know, from here moving forward. The future of weddings is intentional. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I have one last question for you. Sure. What can wedding professionals learn from the queer community? Oh, I think there's so much to learn from the queer community. I think learning that community is everything is a big part of it. I think that, you know, a lot of people say community over competition these days, but I think really if I didn't have a community, I wouldn't be where I am. If I didn't have people I could rely on, I could trust, I could listen to, I could learn from, I could give back to, you know, I don't know where I would be. And so I think 
a big part about our community is it embraces and celebrates people for who they are, not who we want them to be, who society wants them to be. And I think the wedding industry can definitely take a lot from that, you know? And if everyone stopped performing and started being who they are, I think the industry would be a much better place to be in. You know, it'd be more genuine, it'd be more diverse, it'd be more interesting, and people would be less tired of performing, of putting on acts to be famous or well-known or strong or this or that or whatever the armor is that everyone carries around every day. Um, because I think that's the beauty of, of the queer community is really celebrating who you are, you know, whatever shade of skin you have or size you are or ability or disability or age or gender, like your beauty in this world is you and no one else is you. So stop trying to be somebody else, you know? And I think the, the wedding industry could take a lot of that and really make it a better place for everyone. Mm. Oh, it's so good. Just as you were like on that train of thought, I started like filling in my own ideas and then you would say exactly what was in my mind. I'm like, yes, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> so good. Um, yeah, uh, that's, it's, it's yeah, just true. Totally. It's really how I feel, you know, and in saying it, it's a reminder to myself. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I'm always yeah. growing. I'm always learning. But it's like saying it as a reminder, you know, and saying like, put down your armor and just be yourself. Yeah, vulnerability is very difficult, but there's there's no greater place to be than yourself, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. that's the beauty of life. And the sooner we can be ourselves, the sooner we can be free and happy genuinely and not chasing likes or chasing friend groups or chasing things that aren't meant for us, you know? I think when I started, I chased so hard. I wanted so badly to be in a certain group of people, to be with the top tier planners and to be with the best. I'm air quoting top tier and best because, you know, in my mind, that was a certain group of people in New York City. And I worked very hard to be in that circle. And when I finally mm -hmm. got in that circle, I realized, what am I doing here? They don't care about me. They're not invested in me. And we're not even the same. Our values don't align. Our beliefs don't align. You know, I... I my biggest word of advice is really the people you come up with in the industry that you start with, that you build relationships with from the ground up are your people. Grow together. Don't reach for something that's not meant for you. Build something that is meant for you and for others. And to me, that's been a big learning lesson over the past 10 years. Mm, mm, fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Jove. My that's pleasure. That's all my questions. I don't know if you have any questions for me that you wanted to ask before I stop recording. Well, I'm just curious what inspired you to do this? Why are you making this podcast? Yeah, good question. Uh, so I launched my own uh, ally training for wedding professionals about six mm -hmm. months ago. Okay. And so I've Congrats. been, uh, I did like a few live Zoom workshops and then I transitioned that to be like a, a mini online course that people could do mm -hmm. self self-guided. And so then I was like in preparation for pride month, I was like, okay, well kind of want to do a little like rejig of the training and, you know, maybe just kind of relaunch that to a new audience. And I was like, how, how am I going to promote the ally training? And then I thought, all right, well maybe I want to create a podcast that becomes the vehicle 
to promote the ally training. And so then that just kind of um, evolved into a much bigger project than anything that mm-hmm. I had really anticipated, which was <laughs> I really just want to tell stories of, of people in the wedding industry who yeah. are talking about the things that I feel like we need to talk about, which is inclusion. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's I've met just some phenomenal, phenomenal people in this in this journey. And so, yeah, I'm really excited by documenting it and then like packaging it up in a way that is, um, you know, profound and entertaining and mm-hmm. and educational all at, all at the same time. So that's sure. that's the goal. We'll see how we go. <laughs> Good. No, you're going and you're doing and it'll be great. Yeah, thanks Joe. Thank you. All sure. right, I'm going to hit rec- uh, I'm going to hit stop, but don't go anywhere yet.